0: From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. When Susan Bigelow Reynolds was studying theology in grad school at Boston College, she saw an advertisement for free housing at St. Mary of the Angels Church in the city's Roxbury neighborhood. In exchange for the place to live, Susan would have to provide a few hours of parish work per week. That seemed like a good deal, so she moved right in. Little did she know that her decision would come to shape her academic focus, lead to six years of ethnographic research in the parish, and bring about the publication of her incredible new book, which is titled People Get Ready, Ritual, Solidarity, and Lived Ecclesiology in Catholic Roxbury. Throughout Susan's research, both during her time living at the parish and in the years since, she explored how a diverse community of black Caribbean, Latin American, and Euro-American Catholics at St. Mary's of the Angels Church have constructed rituals of solidarity as a way of building bridges across difference. In the book, Susan argues for a retrieval of Vatican II's notion of ecclesial solidarity as a basis for the mission of the local church in an age of migration, displacement, and change. Susan's book is a must read for a few reasons. For one, it's a beautifully written volume that combines memoir, theology, and ethnography in a fascinating yet really accessible way. Also, People Get Ready is essential for anyone interested in American urban Catholicism at all, no matter where you are in the country, especially in light of the challenges and opportunities posed by things like cultural diversity, social justice issues, and parish mergers and closures. Finally, the story of this parish community is a powerful testament to how ritual can foster friendship, power, peace, and survival amid suffering and marginality. I really can't recommend it enough and loved asking Susan about her research and how she put this project together. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, Dr. Susan Bigelow Reynolds, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time, how are you?
1: I'm doing well, how are you?
0: Oh, great, we're talking on Valentine's Day, so love is in the air. Uh, and I wanna talk a little bit about love. Um, first of all, congratulations on the book, which is a labor of love. This book to me is love incarnate in a book. And it feels this book feels different to me from any other book I've ever read, I think. I think I can safely say that because it's a combination of so many different things, history, theology, but it's also memoir, social science, ethnography. It's like beautiful storytelling. There's everything here. And this is like the work of your life is kind of what it feels like. This is not something that you came into like kind of late in the game as an outside researcher. So maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about how you came to know this parish, St. Mary's of the Angels in Roxbury, Massachusetts.
1: I'd love to, and thank you for that introduction. Um, that was really beautiful. And I think you're right. This was a labor of love. This was more than a decade of, um, of my life um, that went into this book. The way that I came to St. Mary of the Angels um, was through an ad seeking a grad student um, who was willing to live in the parish house, which was not occupied by a priest, um, as, as are so many um, in Boston with the priest shortage. It was 2011 at that point. Um, this community didn't have a priest in residence and they, for a long time, had kind of brought in grad students or um, Jesuit volunteers, kind of lay people, often women, uh, willing to sort of be a minister of presence at the parish. Um, as the book chronicles, the parish plays a really vital role in the neighborhood of Eggleston Square uh, in Roxbury, the Roxbury neighborhood of Boston. And it was really important to the community that somebody be uh, a living presence in the, um, in the parish house, sort of the rectory they called it a parish house um, that it not just sort of stand empty except for you know Sundays for a few hours. Um, And so I moved in sight unseen. I responded to the ad. I said, this looks great. I will gladly live here for free in exchange for 13 hours a week of work because I am a poor grad student and have no money. And I don't know anything about Boston because I'm moving from the Rio Grande Valley. I have no sense of the place whatsoever. Um, This sounds awesome. And there was already another young woman grad student living there. So we were kind of a, um, a duo in the parish house. Um, And uh, I found very quickly that the story that this place and these people were telling about what it means to be church, about what it means to be Catholic, about what it means to be a church in the city uh, in the 21st century was radically different, not divergent, but different than what I was learning in my rigorous theology classes at Boston College and complementary in a way, right? There was uh, this sense that I was I was learning theology in the classroom, but then I was living this really incarnate theology when I came home to St. Mary's at night. But in other ways, they were different, right? It seemed to me that this community was telling a story about the church that hadn't been told yet. And really at the, the base of that, um, was, as I say in the book, I think this really powerful lived ecclesiology, uh, that's something that the church should be paying attention to today.
0: Maybe you could bring us there. You're such a good, vivid um, storyteller and painting pictures, which I, what I love about this book too is like it's an academic work, but it doesn't feel like academic writing. It feels like very, it's a, approachable and again, vivid, all the detail that are, is in there. And so bring us uh, in our imaginations there. If we arrive on the street, in the neighborhood on the street, and come to the parish on a Sunday, what are we encountering?
1: Sure. Well, um, as a number of very long-time parishioners told me, the first time they came to the parish, uh, they had to ask where the parish was. They said, I heard there's a Catholic church here. Where's the church? Um, and then, you know, whoever was standing at the bus stop would be like, oh, it's right there behind you. And the reason for that is that the parish was built in 1906, or I should say it was established in 1906. It was kind of carved out of the boundaries of another larger parish during this kind of like wave of optimism about, oh, we have all of these Irish and Italian and German immigrants moving in. Let's build a billion parishes. and um, in most cases, it took a number of decades before there were like, we built too many parishes. But in the case of St. Mary's, it took like a couple of years before they were like, we probably shouldn't have built this parish. Um, they never raised enough money to actually build the upper building. So they built the basement, basement chapel, just like, you know, is in your, your parish or mine. Um, and after two years, they still didn't have enough money to actually build the sanctuary. So they put a roof over the top. Um, and said, okay, you guys are celebrating mass down the street in a a rail car barn. Uh, You can now move into your parish. Um, And as you raise the money, we will build the church. But for now, you can worship in the basement. Well, that was 1906. Uh, It's 2023. It's still a basement church with a roof on top of it. Um, So in order to enter the church, you will descend down a staircase, sort of a narrow staircase. Um, And into this sort of garden level, mostly underground sanctuary. Um, And it's a very simple place. There aren't even bathrooms in the church. The bathrooms are next door in the parish house. It's one room you know and then you have you know a closet in the in the sacristy but for all intents and purposes it's one room there's no narthex or cry room um you know red carpet old creaky thick wooden pews a very simple altar statues of the virgin mary on either side really old kind of yellowing stained glass windows that are reinforced um kind of by that like internal wire so that they don't break um it's dark It's loud, um, both during Mass and even when you're the only one in there because of the sound of the heater, Um, if you were there now in February during the winter. Um, And it's cozy. And that's not a term that I use very often when thinking about a typical U.S. Catholic parish. Maybe a chapel sometimes. But even then, I I, I guess I wouldn't say cozy. Uh, Maybe I would say, I don't know, intimate or spooky or something. Um, but St. Mary's is a very cozy place. It's a very homey place. Um, and you can tell once you're in there that this is a place that's sort of been added to and revised for generations. In the book, I talk about all of the different speakers and soundboards that have been assembled together <laughs> to form this like bricolage sound system. Um, Everything is kind of makeshift. And yet you can tell this is really this is on one hand, this is a, you know, as Pope Francis says, kind of a poor church for the poor. You know, this is a simple place, but it's also a a place of love. Right. The fake flower decorations at the end of the pews, you know, on the pillars have been lovingly arranged by parishioners bringing the materials from home. The simple altar cloth has been lovingly ironed uh, by folks who are coming in after working long hours at their jobs to do that work. Um, It's really, it's it's a place that's a labor of love. um, And it immediately became very special to me.
0: And how about the Sunday? You spend a lot of time on the Sunday, the liturgy itself, certainly, but then other things that are happening in between liturgies. Uh, so yeah, yeah. try to, I know this is all asking a lot and you do this all in the book and we'll make sure folks can get the book. But just as like a, an introductory way, yeah, what would you be seeing and experiencing uh, on a Sunday?
1: Well, again, imagining that you were coming to this parish for the first time, genuinely, if you were a newcomer, um, you would walk in and be enveloped uh, in greeting, which again, if, you, if I think about the, the first time that I've walked into most parishes or, or congregations or houses of worship, I walk in with a lot of timidity, right? Where do I go? I don't know anybody. Where should I sit? Who am I here? Who are these people? Um, maybe I'll just sit in the back. Um, but for my very first Sunday at St. Mary of the Angels, um, I was greeted, I was embraced, I was introduced, I was introduced to everyone. And from then on, if I wasn't there, right, everybody would say, Where were you last Sunday? Everyone knew my name. I knew everyone's name. I remember I brought, uh, I would occasionally bring friends from BC, um, from my, you know, my classmates at Boston College. Um, and I remember um, one of my friends looked over at me and said, Does everyone know everyone else's name? Um, Right. It's kind of remarkable. So there's a 9 a.m. like many parishes, there's like a 9 a.m. English mass and then an 1115 Spanish speaking mass. They used to also have an additional kind of black gospel mass. Uh, Now the gospel mass and sort of the I don't know, like gather book <laughs> folky mass have been combined into one as of, I think maybe 20 years ago. So the English mass has this really interesting kind of amalgam of like your St. Louis Jesuits classics um, and uh, really deep cuts from the gospel tradition. Um, so, you know, hush somebody's calling my name was one of um, my favorite uh opening songs uh, that was a that was a saint mary's classic we sung out of the 1987 lead me guide me um, and it was really this space where you know you had these multiple liturgical traditions and yet everybody knew everybody else's music um, and it was clear that this was a community that had really constructed itself in love um, over over decades. The 11 o'clock Spanish mass was, as they often are, right, much younger, much larger, a lot more families rather than kind of seniors, older folks, um, and really, really vibrant. Most of the community there is from the Dominican Republic. For a while, it was predominantly a Puerto Rican, but now I would say the majority is from the Dominican Republic. Um, but really, the, the congregation draws from, from a lot of different spaces throughout Mexico and Latin America and Spain and the Caribbean, especially. Um, the music is very uh, merengue-inflected, I would say. Um, the Mass, of course, is in Spanish, um, and uh, the um, choir, I would say, is kind of the centerpiece of that liturgical experience. Um, the choir uh, practices and practices and offers this uh, sort of array of, of gorgeous, um, mostly uh, women uh, performed liturgical music that's just incredibly vivifying. Um, so those are the two kind of, predominant communities there. The thing that I was always struck most by, though, and the thing that really floored me the first week I was there and stayed with me for the next 10 years, was that you didn't just have these two kind of um, discrete uh, linguistic communities, because that's pretty common at this point, right? There's a lot of parishes, a really growing number, but really a lot of parishes that have, say, an English-speaking community and a Spanish-speaking community. Um, What was so striking to me was that in every way, these two mass communities were all part of the same parish community. So nobody like left the church after the closing hymn of the English mass, right? Everybody kind of stayed and hung around and then the Spanish mass folks would come and they would talk and greet one another and laugh and share and catch up. Um, and it was this deep experience of community where people, you know, not only did they love or kind of it, not love, not only really did they appreciate each other in this kind of like, um, in like a try hard way, like we are being one community and we are going to try to appreciate one another. It was, I mean... Folks were friends. Folks had fought to keep the parish open. Folks had fought in the '60s to keep the highway out of Roxbury. Um, folks had fought in the '80s um, to to you know save youth from gang violence. These are folks that had fought together and um, lived as neighbors um, and accompanied one another for for decades, both sort of within the parish and within the neighborhood. They were they were friends. They were allies. They were family. Um, And that to me, again, and kind of going back to your question about like, why, um, like, why did I write this book? For me, that was the most striking thing is we talk a lot about unity and diversity in the church. Um, But I had never seen a, a community of communities, right, where the folks in those discrete communities really loved and cared about one another and saw one another as just as much members of their parish community Um, as folks within their own linguistic community.
0: Yeah, and one thing, one section of the book early on I found interesting, we do hear that talk, right, about, like, unity and diversity, and that we're all around this one table, and we're all part of one family, you know, we're one body of Christ, and so, like, our differences then kind of fade away, like, there's neither Jew nor Greek in Christ, and so we're all united, Uh, and you just you kind of push back on that a little bit. And so I'm curious for you, like how St. Mary's is different from that kind of, that vision we're seeing now of like, we hear that, that the unity and diversity parish or the shared parish, like what, again, we say a little bit more about what made it different and then like, how, how did it get to be that way?
1: The question about unity and diversity is a really good one. I think that that's language that we use when we think we're doing our very best as Catholics right? We're saying, no, we have this gift of Catholicity. We're one, you know, we're the, the universal church, but then we're also the local churches and the local churches are just as much church as the universal church. Um, and we appreciate one another, uh, in our diversity because we're all one in Christ, right? This is kind of like the Galatians, uh, that temptation of that language to say, well, no, they're, you know, just as you said, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, which in one sense, yes, that's extraordinarily radical. But today, I think that language is appropriated, especially those in positions of power and dominance to say, well, you know, we don't really have to talk with too much uh, detail or discomfort about things like racial difference, right? Because at the end of the day, when we approach the Eucharistic table, aren't we all one in Christ? Um, and to me, that's a radical abuse of sacramental theology and frankly, very poor sacramental theology. Um, what was so striking to me about the community at St. Mary's and and why ultimately, because we've all been in communities that were just sort of um, struck by or enchanted by, right? For me, it wasn't just that this was a really fascinating community doing something different. For me, ultimately, it was about theology, right? What are the sources of our theology? So if we have books written about ecclesiology and about our, you know, Catholicity and unity and diversity and how we're all one in Christ, right? And we have this lived example of a different kind of ecclesiology, right? That's a theological source too, right? These histories, these stories, these practices, these are also theological sources. And so for me, the book is about reading these two sets of sources together, right? Not in saying, here's something that we um, deduce from theory or read in a book, and then I'm going to give you an example of how that's applied in real life, right? It's about saying, here's the literature. Here's a question that's raised in the literature. And that question for me is, what do we mean by difference, right? How, how do we negotiate difference in reality and in theology? Because we're very, very comfortable with diversity, right? We can talk about diversity until the cows come home. Diversity is very nice, we love diversity. But when we're talking about difference, right, that's when things get hairy. And the problem in the church isn't diversity, okay? The problem is difference, right? How do we encounter one another in our difference? And so for me, when I attended for not just, you know, a year, I I lived in the parish house for a year, but I remained a parishioner there for five years and then came back regularly to do um, interviews and observations and things like this. Um, So it's basically six years of of really deep ethnographic research and kind of 10 years overall of really kind of deeply attending to the history of this place and scrutinizing practices and interviews and things like that, um, what I came away with was a profound sense that this was a community that had constructed practices and structures by way by which they were able to uh, maintain a cultural and racial distinctiveness difference uh, without dissolving it Right, without sort of wishing it away, without eliding it, and yet still working together in really practical and profound ways um, to be the body of Christ to one another and in, in the local neighborhood.
0: Could you share like any examples of that, like practically, like when you, what you saw and you thought, oh, this is something different or something intentional, or that we see that kind of being lived? Just so we can get a sense of what precisely you're talking about.
1: Yeah. Um, I'll share an example, um, sort of a kind of an important historical touchstone, and then I'll share a really, um, like everyday liturgical practice. Um, so I think, uh, the most powerful way that, um, that this was lived out sort of in the recent history of the parish was that in 2004, um, as folks familiar with the Boston Archdiocese uh, probably remember all too well, Um, the Archdiocese announced the closure of about a fifth of its parishes. So, of course, this was like two and a half years after um, the spotlight revelations. So there was, you know, there was already this feeling of deep woundedness and betrayal um, throughout the Archdiocese. And then for a number of logistical and financial and administrative um, and structural reasons, the decision was made to close, yeah, like about a fifth of of existing parishes, like almost 80 parishes were affected. Um, And uh, it was very, very painful for Catholics in Boston and St. Mary of the Angels because it was extremely small, because it was an extremely poor community. It was always kind of on the peripheries. It was always sort of uh, one one step away from closure, like for decades, (laughs) um, found itself on the closure list. Um, And it was one of very few parishes, maybe a handful of parishes in the archdiocese to successfully protest its closure. And the way that they did that was by really kind of intentionally rejecting the approach that a lot of other parishes protesting their closures took which was to lean heavily on this sort of nostalgic immigrant experience of, Oh, we built this parish. My grandparents built this parish. I was baptized here. I was married here. How could you close my parish? And to say, we didn't build this parish. None of us built this parish. This is a community that at least in the 1980s was home to parishioners from more than 40 countries. So none of us built this space. This is, this is a way station, right? This is, this is a fluid migrant space for a, for a migrant people. Um, And yet what we've done here um, is construct a parish community that is so vital to the survival of the neighborhood of Eggleston Square that's so deeply enmeshed in relationships with other communities of faith, with other neighborhood organizations, with schools, with community gardens, with neighbors, that if you closed this parish, you would destroy the neighborhood. And that argument was successful. Um, And that was an example of this community um, of vastly diverse and different people, people who are economically diverse, people who spoke dozens at that point of languages, uh, people who were migrants, people who were lifelong Bostonians, um, coming together in and through those differences to say, this is a space that matters to us. Um, On a more everyday kind of liturgical level, I always think about the liturgies of Holy Week when I think about the way that St. Mary's celebrates difference. Um, uh, I'll, I'll tell the story that a parishioner told to me um, she, I asked her what her favorite mass was during the year, and she said um, that her favorite mass was Palm Sunday, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, and I asked why, and she said, well, it's bilingual, and I'm not bilingual. I don't speak Spanish. Um, so I said, well, that's interesting. Um, and she said, yeah, but you know, that's okay, because I understand some things. Um, and other folks understand other things. And so together, we kind of understand it all. And she said that she really appreciated the way that the the procession at the beginning of Mass always started in the playground down the street. And then we would process up the block um, and then down the stairs into the parish. And, um, and she said that she always appreciated the way that, you know, when we had to bottleneck onto the sidewalk, right, you couldn't, Stand next to who you wanted to stand next to. You didn't even necessarily end up next to the people that you came with. And then you push into the church and everybody has to take their seats really, really fast. And so you kind of end up sitting like kind of anywhere next to next to somebody that you might not even know. She said she's one of those people that she says she has her pew and she's very territorial about it during, you know, ordinary time. But she said, "I, I really love this experience of kind of getting mixed up on on purpose right it it reminds me i'm not in control um and it reminds me that i don't have to be right i can i can meet my neighbors i can sit next to my neighbors Um, and that experience is holy
0: both of these stories well first of all thank you for for sharing them but i think they both too get at a big portion of the book which is the the relationship, the dynamism between parish and neighborhood, that this, these are not things that you can make these uh, firm uh, like walls between, like the, the parish does not. And I think you talk about this too, like even canonically, the parish, a Catholic parish includes the territory and the people who are not even members there, but really responsible for this. And that, that kind of looking outward that we're very, very good as Catholics, I think at gathering, but like not always sending or looking out and engaging the world around us very well, but perhaps urban parishes have experienced that in different ways. And I think a lot of time to talk about the, the connection between the parish and its surrounding neighborhood and as a, a a borderland place, as a place again of migrations or people coming from around the world and arriving there, then also coming from different parts of Boston to, to get there. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, that I feel like sometimes is a piece now when we think of parish life, it's very insular, but you show that like whether it's liturgically and like being out in the street, um, being in meetings with people from all around, fighting to keep themselves alive, like these, these distinctions between like the, what's going on at church and then what's going on in the neighborhood um, are not helpful ones. So could you talk a little bit more about how you see those relating?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think those who work in sort of historical vein, in US Catholicism, think about the parish um, as this really deeply locally rooted space. um, But also implicitly with that kind of uh, this, uh, we, we think in terms of these historical ethnic enclaves, right? And so this sense of the parish being rooted in a place also has been correlated with this sense of like ethnic stability. So for example, as John McGreevy has demonstrated um, in some of his historical work, uh, Catholic neighborhoods were actually slower to participate in white flight from cities than Protestant neighborhoods. And there was a sense, right? in like a really, um, really ambivalent sense, right? Of, of, no, this is, you know, this is our territory. I I say ambivalent, but really actually like morally a very negative sense. Um, But, you know, one could read that as, oh, no, we're staying committed to place. But in fact, a lot of it was about sort of defending our parish territory from these encroaching outsiders. Um, And so for me, thinking about the role of the church uh, in a neighborhood had to go beyond the kind of the quixotic way that theologians tend to talk about parish and, and place, right? A, a lot of what we say about locality and place in community um, operates on this plane of the ideal, right? Oh, I'm going to remain rooted in my neighborhood. There's something holy about the simplicity of, of the local, right? Over and against this like, whatever globalization or like, you know, forces that pull you in all directions, like to be local is to be committed, right? Um, but if you read below the, the ideal, right? And really start to read the actual histories of actual places, um, you find a, a, a much more complicated picture. So in the case of St. Mary of the Angels, right, this is a parish that was rooted in a place just like Catholic parishes are geographically. Um, but that place wasn't like this vaguely monocultural ethnic enclave, right? This place was a borderland from the beginning. It was a predominantly Jewish neighborhood. Um, and so catholics from the very beginning were existing in this religiously pluralistic context they had to be good neighbors right there were very few catholics living within the parish boundaries of st mary's um, starting in the 1930s and 40s saint mary's um, formed kind of a triangle with two really historically important black congregations and it became the first site of african-american settlement during the great migration in boston um, so, uh, so St. Mary's started to become home slowly, um, to black Catholics, right? Then it was the Puerto Ricans, then it was the Dominicans and the Cubans. Um, for a while, they were home to a, a really sizable Lao community. Um, a Haitian community was very prominent there for a while, um, And not all of these communities still have a presence there today. Like I said, today, it's predominantly Dominican, Puerto Rican, African-American, white, Irish-American with tons of other folks uh, in there as well. Um, But throughout, right, this was a place that was kind of this, this borderland Right. And so what does it mean to call a parish not like a, you know, this sort of bastion of neighborhood stability, but really, like I say, kind of a way station, a place for for a a pilgrim church, a migrant church in not just in a metaphorical way, but in a really real way. I think when we talk about um, the church in the city, too, we can't um, forget the the real and. kind of inescapable role that, um, practices like redlining played in forming these neighborhoods. I think that we so, um, often that we so kind of idolize in our memory of this like golden age Catholic past, um, right. These are neighborhoods in St. Mary's in some ways, St. Mary's looks like it does because Eggleston square was redlined. It was a, you know, class D, uh, community where banks would not give loans to families trying to settle there. Um. And so for that reason, too, it was never this sort of stable place like that we think of when we think of like an urban, you know, 20th century urban parish. So what does it mean then to to think about places, uh, right? Cities, streets, um, as spaces in which these um, racist histories were like inscribed into? Um, how does that change the way that we think about place? How does that change the way that we think about what a parish is, when we call a parish this sort of geographically stable community of the faithful.
0: Hey, this is Mike Jordan-Lasky and one of the hosts of AMDG, popping in for just a minute to tell you about an awesome program called Contemplative Leaders in Action, or CLA. It's an Ignatian leadership program for people in their 20s and 30s. I'm actually an alum of the program. I did it about 10 years ago in Philadelphia and found it to be a life-changing experience that really invited me and like the other 15 people or so in in my cohort to think about how we act and live in the world in a way that reflects our beliefs, affirms our own purpose in life, and also promotes social justice. I'm here with my friend and colleague, Meg Leach. Meg is in CLA right now in Washington, DC. Meg, why don't you tell me a little bit about what your experience has been like?
1: So for me, like for you, Mike, I think the greatest gift of this program has been the community and the friendships that I have gained from it. So, you know, over the last 18 months, uh, my cohort has gathered twice a month to explore different themes around nation spirituality and, and leadership, themes like relational leadership, leading in complexity, accountable leadership, but also, you know, vocational discernment. Um, and how do those apply holistically to our lives, not just our careers, but also our family and friends' lives. Um, And as I finish up this experience, I'm really grateful for the, the deep kind of friendships that I've cultivated through really intentional sharing and reflection and communication.
0: That's awesome. So you have two big advocates here on the program. There are new cohorts forming now in different cities across the country and an online cohort so folks can be involved no matter where you're living. Again, for people in their 20s and 30s who are interested in learning how Ignatian spirituality can, can guide you as a leader in the world today, you can apply online at contemplativeleaders.org. That's contemplativeleaders.org. The application deadline is May 1st, 2023. And uh, do it. Do it.
1: That's
0: all. <laughs> One of, the, I think, the most vivid stories you share and sections, a whole chapter of the book about the, the Holy Week liturgies and especially the, the way of the cross on Good Friday as, again, this, this connection point. Here between the parish literally in the out in the streets and moving through and I participated in And some of those at a a parish in in New Jersey, but a different feel certainly from what you describe and and so yeah I talk a little bit about why that for you that that way of the cross on Good Friday gets such a, a big Part of the book. What do you think it kind of reveals? Um about some of the the things you were exploring
1: sure um, Uh, this was the part of the book that I wrote first. This is the oldest part of the book. Um, The book actually started as a study of that ritual of this neighborhood way of the cross. Um, I'll just talk a little bit about that ritual to begin. And then I'll talk about why I think it's so meaningful. Um, So starting at some point in the seventies or early eighties, the St. Mary of the Angels community, um, which at that point was uh, becoming increasingly involved in gang prevention because Eggleston square was really, um, kind of the, the epicenter in some ways of gang activity in Boston or one of the epicenters. And a lot of the youth from the parish were getting wrapped up into the gang, uh, life essentially. Um, as the eighties went on, the parish was losing more and more kids every year. Um, and really just stunning levels of death that were happening, um, in and around Eggleston Square. And so uh, the decision was made by parish leaders uh, to bring the cross into the streets. Um, and so each Good Friday, they would process up in each of the stations of the cross, you know, Jesus is condemned to death, Jesus falls for the first time, Jesus meets his mother, etc. cetera, um, would uh, be a different place in the neighborhood where suffering or death or hope <laughs> had visited the community throughout the prior year. Um, and what you got essentially was this really kind of radical and profound way, um, not only of telling the neighborhood's story each year through the, through the lexicon of the passion, but also in a real way, claiming divine solidarity uh, for the church in Boston. Um, and we find this in the archdiocesan documents, right? I did a ton of archival research for the book um, and Roxbury was sort of synonymous with like gang infested inner city, right? It kind of uh, Roxbury in particular, Roxbury was not the only place where gangs were a problem. It wasn't the only place where poverty was a problem. Um, But in a lot of, uh, in a lot of documents, um, internal documents um, and beyond the church as well, the, the name Roxbury kind of almost became this um, synonymous like with, um, with, the, the ills of the inner city. Um, to go to Roxbury, right, meant something very particular. Um, and so, for this community that had been so long neglected, um, both politically, municipally, um, but also ecclesially, to venture into the streets with the cross, with its neighbors, and to say, um, God is with us in this work, in this journey, God is here, uh, God listens. Um, it was something very profound. And again, to your earlier point, really kind of contesting that boundary between church and not church, right? It was very clear to me that um, the you know, the organizers of the way of the cross, and uh, in, in it still it continues today, every Good Friday. So it's been going on for a number of decades now. There wasn't this sense that like, oh, we're bringing the cross into the streets to like sanctify the streets because the streets are, um, you know, uh, this fallen uh, place that's um, that's bad and the church and the cross are like uh, good. So we're going you know, we're making this space holy. There was never that sense at all. And I say that because that's the way that public processions and rituals like this tend to be interpreted within the literature is this kind of, um, sanctifying space. Um, but there wasn't the sense of that at all. It was this sense that this is all the church, right? And again, if we really believe what we say about parishes, right, that we're not just talking about the church, we're talking about the whole territorial area in a way, it was this like performance of, of parish life, uh, in a really, really vivid way while also being this practice of, of bearing witness to the real, uh, struggles and and trials um, and also hopes of of the community that that uh, everyone there participated in creating.
0: You write too about your own participation in this and carrying the cross during that procession. Also on Palm Sunday, another way that they get into the the passion is to present a mime, and that you were asked to play the part of Jesus in that and, uh, and, and did that. And so for you, I'm curious for you, as you were a grad student, you were studying things, you had your own interests coming into that experience. And how much did participating and being at St. Mary shape your own like career trajectory? Like is what you're studying different because of that? Like how did that affect your, your work? I, I am I'm curious about like the impact that you have felt from your uh, connection there.
1: It shaped my work more than anything else um, in, the, in the book, maybe in the acknowledgements. I, I call the people of St. Mary's my first and best teachers of theology. And that's not, um, I don't say that as just like kind of a nice, um, a nicety. Um, I, I really mean that in every way, um, my participation in, um, in this community um, living in the parish house, um, being a parishioner, being, um, being called on, um, you know, for, you know, little tasks, being roped into committees, <laughs> um, you know, even just simple things like, you know, lecturing bilingually or, um, or you know, um, doing heavy lifting, literally um, cleaning the parish, um, on, on Saturday mornings with, with, you know, the crew of volunteer parishioners that would come from both, both masses every Saturday. Um, it was this inauguration into the everyday life of, of this place that really captured my heart, um, in a deep way and, um, and shaped in every imaginable way, both my research trajectory and my career trajectory. Um, I think in terms of the research that I do, um, it made me deeply convinced um, in the need for good public facing theology. Um, And not just public theology that's for the public, but public theology as theology constructed in and by communities, right? A sense of um, of the theological agency that exists in spaces like this, right? We think often of theological research as like a one-way endeavor, right? I'm sort of in my uh, in my world of, you know, Candler School of Theology, doing my research, and then I teach what I teach. Um, and then maybe sometimes I'll offer a public lecture or a presentation at a parish, and then, it you know, it's a wider audience. Or maybe you can read my book. Um, But for me, that feels really insufficient, Um, and that's because I feel very strongly um, that communities also possess theological agency. They possess a theological voice, Um, and I think the best thing that I can do as a researcher, as a scholar, as a teacher um, is to, um, to nurture and support communities in the discovery and articulation of of their theological voice. Um, it also just shaped my life as a, as a Catholic. I think, um, it was as the Jesuits say, <laughs> um, uh, you know, it was that kind of parish that sort of ruins you for life. Um, it made me really impatient. I think, um, uh, about communities that, that, um, you know, communities where I would, um, where I would go and there, you know, there's a, a, a police, you know, killing of, um, an unarmed black man and you go to church and it's like, um, it, it never happened. Or you're like walking into a space where, um, you know, um, like this ideal space where we don't have to talk about, um, about, you know, racism or, uh, xenophobia or, uh, anything else because we can just, you know, whatever, go to church and none of that matters. Um, it, it it showed me the kind of community that I want to raise my family in, the kind of community that I, I want to raise my kids in. I think as a white Catholic, I was, you know, raised in the kind of south suburbs of, of Denver. I was raised uh, implicitly, of course, never explicitly, but implicitly uh, to believe that white Catholics were like default Catholics um, and everybody else was, you know, diverse. Uh, and that, um, that very sorry, I think, and, and limited vision of church um, was also stripped away um, often in ways that were, were like very uh, convicting of, of my own formation as a white person, um, by my time at St. Mary's. And it, it made me feel really, really strongly that we have a responsibility to do better. And when I say we, I mean, all of us, we have a responsibility to, to do better by our kids, um, in terms of the formation that they receive. Um, that's a, that's a real conviction of mine.
0: Hmm. Maybe one last follow up then before, I let you go. But this and this isn't your task. You're talking about we need to do better. And your task was not necessarily here to provide a, a blueprint for for places uh, that are interested in this. But I, there are questions that come out, certainly, from your work here, from this one specific community, to think about, yeah, we look at our own communities or our own parishes. And I imagine people listening are a whole wide range of places um, what, are there any, for you, are there any steps you've taken then to the parish where you belong now or other things, lessons you've, things you've carried or things that you think people could, in other contexts, could learn from the St. Mary's community uh, when trying to, to make their own places, uh, communities animated by, you know, by solidarity and places of real communion?
1: Um, what I would say um, is that lay leadership Matters and it matters deeply. Um, I would say the biggest surprise, where I, you know, you're often it's you're surprised by by research by what you find. Um, I thought I was going to be writing a book uh, mostly about liturgy, actually, and that didn't happen at all. Um, But the the biggest surprise um, of my archival work was when I came across all of these documents related to the Saint Mary of the Angels parish pastoral Council. Um, and maybe some of you out there are on your parish pastoral councils. Um, I'm sure it's been a dynamic experience that has changed your life. Um, but what, what I discovered and, and what was funny was that when I um, when I arrived at St. Mary's um, I was I was asked to be on the parish pastoral council because I was one of the residents of the parish house and I was like, okay. I actually at that point did not know what a parish council was. Um, But it struck me immediately that there was something a little bit different going on here. Um, It was truly the laity who were sort of the story bearers of this community, of this parish. And the pastor um, was a member of that community, but he wasn't the one dictating or steering the conversation. Um, And what I discovered was that St. Mary's was one of the first parishes in the Archdiocese to set up a, pastoral, a parish pastoral council, and they did it really before the rules and the regulations for parish councils had ever had be, been even um, really well-defined. They, they started it in like 1969, so right after Vatican II, um, the possibility of parish and diocesan pastoral councils was sort of gestured toward in the council, and they were later sort of um, clarified, but the folks at St. Mary's who, again, at that point were living in this deeply neglected inner city space, um, kind of seized the opportunity and, and ran, ran with it. And they set up this interracial parish council of men and women and the, the pastor and parochial vicar and deacon. Um, and from there used that structure, right. Um, it's structures matter. They used this nascent structure, um, to place the parish into really concrete relationships of solidarity with the surrounding community. So they moved the parish's finances to Boston's first black owned bank, for example. They petitioned the archdiocese to have mass, uh, Sunday mass on Saturday night, which was again then a, a um, still a, really a new development from Vatican II um, because Sunday was the only day that the working people of their parish um, had the opportunity to have a day of rest and leisure and get out of town, get out of the hot city. Um, and so they, they petitioned, uh, Cardinal Cushing to, to have mass on Saturday nights. And they were actually one of the the first parishes in the city to request it. Right. And it was, and they did that because, um, because of the rights and dignity of, of working people. There's a a number of things that they did, but the, the upshot is that they used, uh, the, the power of lay leadership to make concrete changes, um, to, to place the parish uh, into relationships of greater solidarity both um in terms of the communities it served and also in terms of the surrounding community and um I think because I'm like trained in you know i at, when I started I was studying like systematic theology you know operating on the level of concepts and then you hear like leadership and things like that. And you're like, Oh, that's all very practical. Like somebody else can do that. Um, (laughs) but the, the thing that, um, the thing that St. Mary's revealed to me, perhaps most of all, that's a, that's a concrete takeaway for parishes today is that structures matter. Meetings matter. Lay leadership, concrete and meaningful lay leadership matters, not token lay leadership. Um, right? Uh, generations of token lay leadership is, is why people look at the synod now and they're like, what what is this? I don't understand. You actually want my opinion? Do you? Are you sure? Because I gave it to you already and that was 20 years ago and you didn't listen, um, right? But today it's, it's, um, it's more important than ever. I think we're at a moment where structures of leadership matter. Um, so that's, I would say that's my, that's my takeaway.
0: Well, Susan, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for sharing your life with us in this book. And uh, it's called People Get Ready, Ritual Solidarity and Lived Ecclesiology in Catholic Roxbury. And I hope our listeners will find it wherever they get their theological books. Uh, Again, I can't recommend it enough. So thank you again for that. And best of luck with whatever is, uh, is next for you. Thank you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire.